Well, hey friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. I want to jump right into things on this episode. Hopefully you know by now we're in Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. Link to the book is in the description. But I would imagine most of you, if you're tuning in, you have already been with me for the last several months. We've been working our way through this book. And so we're going to be on page number 104. And what we're doing in this episode is to wrap things up. Wrap things up at least in the first chapter of two chapters in this book, because there's only two chapters there. We went through that massive amount of introductory material because this is volume one of I think a a future plan is for seven volumes at least six uh, by um, the translators and by Reformation Heritage Books they have been doing a great work of getting this into the English language and so we're wrapping things up in the first chapter dealing with the nature of theology Uh, Next time, we're going to be jumping into chapter 2, which is entitled uh, the, let's see what the actual title is, Holy Scripture. But we've been dealing with this uh, introductory matter that sets us up for our conversation about Scripture, and you can really see how that's the case in this particular episode. We're looking at page 104 through page 112. So at the very end, we're going to deal with uh, what he entitles the Atlantic and the practical part of this whole discussion. Uh, If you missed an episode, please tune into the previous ones to be brought up to speed on what we've been talking about. I'll try not to rehash everything in this episode. But now he's dealing with the supposed problems of this whole idea dedicated to the nature of theology what we think about it, how we approach it, we've been talking about how it's practical, to what degree it is, how we think about theology in a theoretical and practical aspect. And so he says this, I suppose there's no Christian who would deny that theology is the doctrine of living for God through Christ. There is his famous definition of theology, the doctrine of living to God through Christ. He says, granted, they may define it in one way or another, differing more in words than in substance, for which we will not criticize them. For this reason, with respect to controversies, we will only mention rather than examine closely one or two problems customarily debated among the Orthodox at the beginning of works of this sort. So he's saying, regardless of what theological tradition we're talking about within the kind of bounds of Orthodoxy, What you have is typically the idea that theology is both theoretical and practical, and that we could define theology as the doctrine of living for God through Christ. The substance is normally the same. The difference normally lies in how it's said, how we utilize terminology to define and to um, kind of tease out what theology actually is. And so he's saying, even though he is the one that's coming along and saying theology is the doctrine of living for God through Christ, um, that is not a revolutionary concept of what theology is. It just might be a particular way of stating it that hasn't been said thus far. So he's saying, I'm not going to get into an argument and insist that 
you call it what I call it. He's saying because the important thing is that we understand it to be the same in substance, that the idea of the doctrine of living for God through Christ is, is maintained. He says, but there are some uh, things that are debated, and uh, he poses those as a series of questions. The first question being, is theology wisdom or prudence? And the second, what is its object? And the third, is it a theoretical or a practical habit? Uh, the first one is theology, wisdom, or prudence. He says, um, first then it is asked, can any of Aristotle's intellectual habits discussed in book six of his Nicomachean Ethics be employed in theology? That is to say, is theology best called wisdom or prudence or one of the other habits? Now, he says there are those who define it as wisdom, that is, they define the most perfect discipline by the most perfect habit. Thus, this definition pleases those who maintain that theology is a theoretical discipline. And then he moves on to interact a little bit more with that idea. So he's saying, is, is theology simply Aristotelian logic and all of the baggage that comes with that, which you see in the Roman Catholic tradition? Uh, especially popularized by Thomas Aquinas. He says, is that what theology is, or is it its own thing? Is it just that we take that previous system that was already in place in logic, and we employ that by plugging in the theological elements? It's an interesting question to ask, because theology kind of becomes a plug-and-play system that could fit into anything, and it just so happens to be maybe Aristotle's idea here is, is the best one. He says, um, going on, he says, we have most carefully defined it as doctrine, which implies all of these habits and does not restrict theology to any one habit. So I think Peter Van Maastricht's argument, if you kind of dive into the debate, uh, going on today, it's been going on for centuries, honestly, of is Thomas Aquinas right or wrong in his Aristotelian uh, system? Or you could put it a different way, is Roman Catholicism right or wrong in its Aristotelian system? Or you could say it uh, going all the way back to the early church fathers um, as to whether or not Jerusalem and Athens have anything to do with each other. Uh, that's one way of saying, is Christian theology its own enterprise altogether that shouldn't interact with different philosophical systems? That's an important debate to have, and I think what Thomas Aquinas does here, or um, excuse me, I think what Peter Van Maastricht does here, is he gives a yes and no answer. Uh, notice he says that what we think about theology, he says we should define it carefully as doctrine because this implies all of these habits and does not restrict theology to any one habit. We could translate that in this way, that theology should not be seen as something that never crosses over and never interacts with the different philosophical systems. I think a good 
picture of this is Paul in the book of Acts, where he uses uh, the philosophical and worldview systems uh, that the Athenians understood, and he applies that in its agreement to Christian doctrine. He doesn't say, we believe the same thing and they're both the same thing, but he says, in this instance, this is a biblical truth, this is a biblical concept from your worldview, from your philosophy that can be utilized and agrees with biblical truth, agrees with Christian theology. On the other hand, Christian theology is not supposed to be pinned down into a certain philosophical system. And that's kind of the problem that you see in the trend of philosophy all the way through history. If you follow the Aristotles and the Plato's and then you keep going through to uh, the heavy hitters in the Middle Ages and then during the time of the Reformation and then into the Enlightenment and then into the modern era, every single person's philosophical system, according to them, had necessary consequences for Christian theology. And so after a certain worldview or philosophy was popularized, you know, it could be Nietzsche, it could be um, Kierkegaard, it could be Karl Marx, it could be anybody that you think of, there were necessary consequences, according to their worldview, that had to be imposed on Christian theology. So it could have to do with how we understand creation. It could have to do with how we interact with the supposed occurrence of miracles in the Bible. And you have a reduction of what the Bible says, of what Christian theology presents, because it has to agree with that philosophical system. So it's, it's, a, it's not even a cut-and-paste theology into the system. It's actually a cut and then a reorganizing and a trimming around the edges and then a piecemealing back together and then putting it in the system. And I, I appreciate what Peter Van Maastricht is saying here because we should recognize that on the one hand, we don't want to pretend like we live in a vacuum and that no essence of philosophy can ever be true. Um, it must always somehow be in disagreement to Christianity. Well, I don't think that's that's right because we as though fallen, we as image bearers, we as creatures made in the image of God, understand who God is. Romans 1, we understand how things are and the philosophical systems that are put into place by various people throughout history are trying to come to terms with that. And so there's always going to be some elements of truth, even though the conclusion might come to a total distortion of uh, true theology. So we don't want to pretend that Christian theology must operate in a vacuum and can never interact or um, utilize other systems. But at the same time, we don't want to say that it must be subservient to systems because systems come and go. Philosophies come and go, um, and that's just how things are. So this yes and no answer is actually a, a wise answer in, in my estimation and something that agrees with the biblical testimony. And then he says, what is the object? What object belongs to theology? There are those who say its object is contemplating God, which is why it's called theology. Then there are those who prefer to say that it is God and his works. 
Um, then there are those who say that it's a mixture of other things. He says, finally, it must be, here's the conclusion that he gives, in order to live for God, we need to know God and his works. But it is insufficient for theology that we know God and his works if we also do not worship God, that is, if we do not live for God through Christ. I just summarized that paragraph, uh, so he goes into much more detail um, with, just, with only a few more sentences there. But the point that he's making is that you could say that it's just God in general. Well, if we re- rewind you know, several pages to some of our discussions about theology, he says back then, theology is inadequate if it's only theology. It has to be Christian theology, because there's a whole lot of theologies around, just like there's a whole lot of philosophical systems around. So you can have all kinds of theologies that deny Christ, that deny our need and hope for salvation, that deny the way that God has ordained that we would be saved. And those all um, end up being inadequate. But then he says, um, that's why we need theology as the doctrine of living for God through Christ, and living for God through Christ, because that brings into play worship. It also brings into play our understanding of needing a Savior, of needing a mediator for our relationship with God, and that's why he says here, it's insufficient for theology that we know God and his works only, because we need um, that element of worship in there as well, and that can only, as fallen creatures, uh, be brought to pass and be um, made possible and effectual for us through Christ. So again, a, a good answer there. Just a, a reminder, so we're talking about the elinctic part, and you'll notice that these are kind of posed as issues. He gives a few different answers, or possible answers, and then he gives his verdict. That elinctic, or that posing an argument, uh, making a defensible position, is what the elinctic part is all about. Uh, we've already talked about a lot of these, but you see he has them kind of in a argumentation format. You see the same thing in Thomas Aquinas's work, the Summa Theologica, his summary of theology, his, his massive uh, multi-volume set, where he deals with everything in a question-and-answer form. And he, pro- he poses an issue, he gives uh, several possible answers, and then he gives his final verdict. This is a very classical way of dealing with theological propositions and giving conclusions. Uh, but the way that Peter Van Maastricht kind of uh, synchronizes that into the way he does theology makes this unique, even though he is using here a kind of classical scholastic system. And then his final one, is it a theoretical or a practical habit? Um, you can probably anticipate what his answer is going to be, but let me read something that I think is, is of importance here. He says, on top of page 107, we therefore, just as we deny that theology is entirely productive, also deny that it is merely theoretical, because all its contents by their own nature demand activity with respect to the object known. Moreover, we also deny that theology is theoretical-practical. Properly speaking, 
and in itself. Although, from our method of treatment, we have characterized it in this way. Rather, we call it practical, even preeminently practical, for the following reasons. He gives several reasons from Scripture. I think there's five of them here. It is called the doctrine according to godliness. We've already looked at that from 1 Timothy 6. Number two, knowledge without practice is everywhere called vain. Cites 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 13. Thirdly, everything in theology is concerned with either the end or the means, and all such things are practical. Think of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You have that means of enjoying him forever, which is practical. Number four, in the sacred page, each and every head of theology is assigned its own practice. For example, there is a practice assigned to Scripture. He cites 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which we'll look at in just a moment. And then, number five, because the practice we have proposed living for God is by far the most complete practice of all. Now, I said you might anticipate what his answer is, but maybe you're surprised to hear his answer because Peter Van Maastricht's answer to is theology a theoretical or a practical habit, he says it's preeminently practical. That might surprise you because he's saying that on the one hand, we've been talking about theoretical, practical theology. It seems like the doctrine and the practice, the belief and the lifestyle go together always. But then he says, even though we call it this, we must insist that it is practical, even preeminently practical. But the reason that he says that is because he has the chief end in mind. I wonder, when we think about the way that doctrine works, we could argue, in a, in a way, that doctrine is ongoing forever, because presumably, when we're glorified, when we're in the presence of God for all eternity, God is incomprehensible, God is infinite, God is eternal, but we, as fully glorified human beings, as we fellowship with God forever and ever, we would, by that fellowship and by that communion, come to know more and more about God. And that coming to know more and more about God, even though it's not tied to an experience of sanctification like it is for us today, even though it's not dependent on our justification, that we understand who Christ is and what he's done for us, uh, that it still functions in a doctrinal format because we're learning truths about God. It's an, it's an aspect of knowledge. But even then, even in heaven, with the highest you know, comparison there, the motivation for glorifying God, the motivation for learning more of him, is the practice of loving him of enjoying him, of the things that we even think about in our Christian experience today where we are not glorified and where we still fight against the flesh and we're imperfect. 
um, that you look somewhere like Ephesians 4, where the idea of Christian maturity is given to us. God has given us the apostles and teachers and shepherds uh, to guide us into truth, to nourish and to care for the body of Christ. And that's the doctrinal and theoretical element. That's the expository preaching. That's the dedication and love for God's Word. That's the fellowship of the saints. But those things are a means to the end. Those things are not ends in and of themselves, as Peter Van Maastricht is saying here. So though in our experience, we do have theoretical and practical always alongside one another, uh, the higher of the two is the practical. And that is not to mitigate doctrine and the importance of theology at all, but rather it's to see theology as its um, main goal of its end game in mind, and that is the practice. Because it, even as Paul says in Ephesians 4, all of those things are for the purpose of bringing the body up to mature manhood, uh, to build the body up for loving God. There's the practical um, end game that we have. And I think that's why Peter Van Maastricht is saying, even though we talk about theology as theoretical, practical, we have to insist, um, at the end of the day, it's preeminently practical. That practical has the preeminent place. All right, so that concludes his argument phase. And I, I mentioned uh, one of his reasons he gives, uh, which was number four. He says that every head of theology is assigned its own practice, and he says there's a practice assigned to Scripture. So now we get to the final portion, these last few pages of chapter one, the practical part. And if you know the Scripture passage that he has cited there, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, um, that God's Word, the Bible, Holy Scripture, is God-breathed, and it's profitable, and then Paul gives Timothy a series of ways in which the Bible is profitable, or we might say practical. And the reasons that he gives, uh, though not exhaustive here, are the exact ones that Peter Van Maastricht now uses. And he says in this list, he says that the practical part of this is reproof, number one. It is examination, number two. It is exhortation, number three. And then he gives a few uh, considerations to end things in this chapter. So I'm not going to go into all of the ins and outs of how this works, but if you want to understand what he's doing, he's pointing us to Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 17, and he's explaining that the practic, the practical elements of Scripture are given to us right there by Paul. And that's how we know that even the doctrine of Scripture itself is not only theoretical, but it's practical. Because these things are uh, the effect and effects that Scripture should have on us. It's not that we learn about Scripture's reproof. It's that we are reproved. It's not that we understand that Scripture is useful for examination, but that we should examine ourselves by Scripture. And thirdly, it's not that 
we come to understand that Scripture can exhort us, but it's that we actually are exhorted by the Scripture. So there's the practical aspects. He poses a few more questions, um, one of which is, what does living for God require? This is on page 109. So he's posing this question as a kind of conclusion or kind of a summary of those three uses that he gives. Let me just refresh you. The three uses, reproof, examination, and exhortation. Again, these aren't exhaustive, but he is pulling from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. With that in mind, he says, what does living for God require? In general, and then specifically, in general, he says, although the answer, in fact, extends through the whole syntagma of theology that we will expound in each of the theological heads. He says, it does contain first in general the following. Number one, we should establish God as the sole object of this spiritual life. Number two, we should make the will of God the sole norm of our life. Number three, we should set God before us as the goal of our whole life. Number four, we should endeavor and do all of this by the power of God. It's a very, very helpful way to think about these things because these are profound answers, but yet you will notice that they are general ways of understanding what living for God requires. He hasn't gotten into nitty-gritty here. These are broad, general uh, statements. God is the sole object of, of our spiritual life, make the will of God the norm of our lives, that we care about that, that we pursue that, that we orient our lives around that. Three, God himself is the goal of our life. And number four, that we do this by the power of God. Then he moves into specifics. The specifics are comprised into six parts, but they're two sets of three. The first is a threefold aim, and the second is a threefold norm. Let me read those for you. The threefold aim of living for God, what that demands specifically is, number one, the highest goal is the glory of God, and naturally, so because for this we were made, for this we were remade and born again, and for this we are called by the gospel. Number two, the intermediate goal is the salvation of our own soul, in which God is especially glorified. And then number three, the last goal is the advantage of our neighbor, for we are not born only for ourselves, but also for our neighbor. This is the threefold aim. The highest goal is the glory of God. Number, that's the general, um, or maybe I shouldn't say general because we're talking about specifics here, uh, but the specific kind of uh, laser focus, if you want to put it that way, is the glory of God. But then it also moves into a consideration of ourselves and others. The glory of God is the chief end of man. Number two God is most especially glorified in our salvation. And number three, um, caring for our neighbor to have that same reality true of themselves. So this is the reality. God, 
and then how we fit into that specifically, and then how our neighbor fits into that specifically. You could say that that's kind of the way that he orients this threefold aim. And then the threefold norm. Number one, the word of God. Number two, the life of Christ. Number three, our own conscience rightly conformed to the word of God. I think we'll see how that, the threefold norm, plays out in, in much more detail when we get to chapter 2, because chapter 2 is all about Scripture. And when we think about Scripture, if I could borrow from the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, Scripture is what teaches us what we are to believe about God and what God requires of us. And so it's not only um, the big idea of content, but it's also the big idea of source. And I think that's what he's getting at here, that the threefold norm of this whole enterprise of Christian theology is the Word of God. That's the number one. The number two, the life of Christ, because of whom we are called Christians. Christ personally commends his life to us as an example. Okay, so you can see that pattern of living in Christ, and then you could also argue later on that Paul does a whole lot of this, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ, follow me as I follow Christ. Number three, our own conscience rightly conformed to the Word of God. So those are fascinating ways to talk about how theoretical practical theology is preeminently practical. Because even though these are truth claims in their uh, various subject matter, they always have an end goal of practice. They always have an end goal of what it means for our lives, what it means for our conscience, what it means for our neighbor. And you can see how that plays out of always getting us to that. Well, finally, he ends this chapter with a series of nine motives to live for God, the manner of living for God in three things, and then six means. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of numbers happening here. But the important part to know, just as the takeaway, is that every time he poses one of his nine motives to live for God, one of the three things that has to do with the manner of living for God, and then the six means to close out the chapter, Every single time, he is citing a passage of Scripture. Now, again, I, I don't want to rehash all these, or else I would basically just be sitting here and reading the rest of this page and a half. Instead, I want to highlight that the reason that he's doing this is because he's actually demonstrating what he's just gotten done saying to us. We just saw the specifics is that the Word of God is the norm of our Christian living. And then it bears on our conscience as a result. He's showing that to us because he's posing these motives, he's posing the means, he's posing the methods, and he's going to Scripture in order to do that. I think it's a brilliant way for him to close out this chapter as he does because it really is a proper segue into chapter 2, Holy Scripture, and it's already prepped us to understand how Holy Scripture fits into our previous discussion that we've been having on the 
nature, the definition, the function of theology. We are now oriented to understand that relationship between theology and practice, theoretical and practical. And we've also been motivated to have a view of theology that is Christian, essentially, and Christian specifically. Um, He's already shown us how inadequate other forms of theology or too broad of a view of theology might be. And I think that's a really helpful way for us to kind of appreciate these previous sessions that we've been doing in chapter one. Uh, Because, as I said at the very beginning of the study of this book, not only is Peter Van Maastricht unique in the way that he presents his fourfold method, but he's also unique in the way that he kind of uh, lays out the trajectory. Because some people would treat these topics that we've been dealing with in a different place in the uh, kind of timeline of systematic theology. Uh, Some of these topics might be used on the front end like we've been doing, but then people go into totally different trajectories and pick up like the doctrine of salvation and the other topics of systematic theology way later on. Well, Peter Van Maastricht has a very, I think, consistent way in which he not only presents things to us, but why he deals with certain chapters the way that he does. And I think that's a really helpful way for us to understand what makes him unique as a theologian, why he's been such a big impact in Dutch circles, and why those who know Dutch were so motivated to get Peter Van Maastricht into the English language for you and I to read and benefit from. And so, with that being said, uh, well, I I say Dutch, but he has been obviously available in Latin as well. Well, with that being said, um, I want to tell you how much I appreciate our time spent together on Better Bible Reading. I want to thank you for uh, so many week-in and week-out episodes of all kinds of things, especially this study dedicated to theoretical practical theology. Um, I always appreciate the positive feedback not because I want positive feedback to make me feel good, but because positive feedback means that this is making a difference in your life and you have benefited from it. And that's my goal in creating content like this on Better Bible Reading is to help you. It's not only for informational purposes, it's not just theoretical, it's practical. I want it to make a difference in your life. And so thank you for being a part of this with me. Next time on Teaching Thursdays, we will dive into chapter 2 entitled Holy Scripture, and that is on page 113 in Peter Van Maastricht's Theoretical Practical Theology, and we will hopefully have as good a time in that chapter as we have so far in chapter one. All right, well, thank you for watching and listening. I'll see you all on another episode real soon.